following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. All right. So, well, like I said, what this uh, professor said, if you ever, as a pastor, are tempted to cut the scripture so that you can get to your sermon, you probably have the wrong priorities. So we are going to try to walk through all 38 verses. Actually, we're going to skip a few because we have some hard names. I figured that wasn't worth your time. But uh, see me struggle with those. But I encourage you this week to meditate on this passage. I want, we cannot possibly cover all that's buried deep inside of these verses this week. So as you go to community groups this week, share what you learned. Share what, what God used in this passage to convict you, to share about who he is. So we are going to first start with Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. But this is just the beginning of what we'll do today. So let's read God's word together. Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3. If you have Bibles, you can turn it or it'll be up on the screen today as well. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter, they, for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Last week we were looking at Nehemiah chapter 8, and we saw that there was this great assembly gathered, and Ezra, the priest, was reading God's word to the people. And as he read, they became overwhelmed with guilt. They started weeping and mourning, but Nehemiah stopped them and he said, no, this isn't the time for mourning. This is a time of celebration. This is a time of joy because of all that God has done for us. So they went out into the wilderness and celebrated the feast, the celebration, right? Celebrating how God preserved his people through the wilderness. But our passage today, they come back from that feast. They have a day kind of in between, and now they've come together for another assembly. And this is a very solemn assembly. There was a time for joy, but now there's a time for God's people to weep. Because although they have rebuilt much of the walls of Jerusalem, there is still much work to be done within God's people. So that's why they come and have this lengthy prayer of confession. The people come before God, but they come before Him in repentance. Notice, they come in sackcloth, they're fasting for a while, they come in sackcloth, they even have dirt on their head. These are all things that demonstrate what's true on the inside. That they are feeling sorrow and humility because of their sin. They're coming with the right hearts, realizing that they have wandered far from God. So they've confessed their sins. But notice this is kind of interesting. They confess the sins of their fathers as well. This might seem a little strange to us to, to bear the guilt and shame of people long ago dead. But it wasn't strange to them. Nehemiah and when he heard about Jerusalem, his first response, if you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 1, was to confess his own sins, but then to confess the sins of his people, present and past, the sins of his fathers. And you know, we just did this actually together. You might not notice the subtlety of this, but in our confession of sin, we don't pray, Father, forgive me 
actually say we, us, are. Because we're coming as a corporate body. I might not have personally broken one of those specific lines this week, but we as a body have. And so we as a people bear that same guilt, that same shame. We, we actually do this regularly, right? If, for example, if your college team was playing a game yesterday, and they went for it on fourth and goal and overtime, instead of kicking the field goal and prolonging the game, you might be bearing some of that shame today with me. Or on a more serious note, in Germany, it's a very sensitive subject, even to this day, to talk about the Second World War and the Holocaust to a German. Because even though it was 70 years ago, generations have gone by, they still feel the weight, the shame, and the guilt of those atrocities their ancestors did. So why this identification with sin that happened in the past? Well, the Jewish community was still experiencing the consequences of those sins. They were still dealing with the unfaithfulness of the generations before them. That's why they are in the situation they are in. They also recognize that they have the same patterns, the same problem, the same root cause that their forefathers did. They will worship idols. They will intermarry. They will fail to keep the commands of God. They will break the Sabbath. We already have looked at times where they were very greedy and mistreated their fellow Jewish brothers. They have the same patterns, the same sins, and so they can relate to their forefathers. They are part and they're connected to the sins of their forefathers in that way. Isn't that true for us? If you really look at your life, look at the sins that you struggle with, is it hard to look back at your own family and see the continued impact that generational sin has? Or to even practice those same sins and pass them down generation after generation? It might be anger, marital unfaithfulness, it could be gossip, judgmentalism, criticism, you name it. I was thinking that one that's really easy for me that sticks out, I probably even said this before last time I preached. Anger is a, a huge struggle for me. When I was growing up, my dad, he was he worked nights and we were very much as children and we would like play football in the hallway and smash against the walls while he was trying to sleep. So understandably, he would yell at us and tell us to stop doing that. He would get angry. And I remember as a kid thinking, I'm never gonna be angry like that. My dad has a real anger problem. What's going on? Fortunately, he's improved and worked on that a lot, but there's been so many times we're driving and the kids are yelling in the back and they're saying, stop talking, I want to listen to this song, or um, stop touching me, stop, and I yell at them and I say, hey, stop yelling! I think, wait, that's, they, they've learned it from me. Their anger, their struggles have been passed down from generation to generation. It's easy for us, I think, as believers, Several thousand years removed from Nehemiah, and even more years removed from the stories that we're going to look at, to think, oh, that's just them. That's in the distant past. Wow, those Israelites really struggled with some easy things. I've never had those struggles. But when the people here look back, they see and identify with the sins of their forefathers, and we need to recognize that we also are the people of God. It's not just Israel and their problem. No, this is our problem. We are the people of God. 
Their sins are our sins. Their patterns are ours. So as we read God's word today, we'll notice that they experience this genuine sorrow for their own sins and also the sins of their fathers. And that leads them to grateful remembrance of God's grace. They see their sin, they acknowledge their sin, and it drives them to worship. They don't become overwhelmed with it and follow it, rather it leads them to worship God and trust Him more. So after this time of confession and worship, they, they offer up a corporate prayer of confession. And this, this, this uh, prayer extends for the rest of the chapter. So it's about 32 verses long. And they're focusing on who God is, what God has done, and who they are and what they have done. So look with me at verse 5 and 6. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting, everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. The focus first is on the faithful God that they worship. They're looking at this. It's kind of fun to see in, in the way that they're emphasizing the name of God. Yahweh. They say, bless the Lord. Right? That's the, the Lord there is the name of God. Blessed be your name. You are the Lord. You are Yahweh. You alone. The reason that's so important is because the name Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's the way that God has bound himself to these people. So anytime they speak his name, it's a reminder of that faithfulness of God. This is the name that God revealed to Moses. You remember from, from the burning bush when he says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he has sent me to you. Yahweh is their faithful God. That is what the rest of this prayer is going to demonstrate, that God is faithful. So how has God been faithful? That's what they're going to articulate, because by confessing their sins, they're also confessing the faithfulness of God. First look at verse 6 again. He is the creator all things. It says, You are the Lord, you will know. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their hosts, and the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. They start here at the very beginning, right? At a very good place to start. And then go through all these different levels of creation, right? The heavens, even the highest heavens, right? It says, The earth, and all that is in it, the seas, and all that is in it, all of these things demonstrate that God is the creator. That he is faithful in his creation. Paul says in Colossians, For by him all things were created. Everything was created through him and for him. That's creator. God is sovereign over every single creature. So of course he's sovereign over this people. Over the people gathered for worship in the assembly that day. But notice what he does in his faithfulness. As we keep reading in verse 6. He says, You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their hosts, the earth, and all that is on it, the sea, and all that is in them, and you preserve them. And the host of heaven worships you. God faithfully preserves all his creation. He holds the planets in their orbit. He keeps the molecules working and functioning that keep you alive, that, that hold the universe together. He makes rain fall on the earth. He makes seed grow to harvest. He makes summer turn to winter, day to night. He provides food and shelter for the sparrow. Paul says, in him we live, we move in him, and we have our very being in him. 
God preserves. He is faithful as the creator, preserving all that he has created. And this results in worship. That all creation should worship him. The rocks and the trees, the birds and the beasts, even the hosts of heaven, worship God because he is the faithful creator. What an important place to start when you're thinking of worshiping God. We even did that this morning in our call to worship in our song. So not only is he faithful in creation, but we see also that he's faithful in his covenant. Look at verses 7 through 8. He says, You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and made him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gershite. And you have kept your promise. You are righteous. Not only was, was the Lord this transcendent creator of all things, but he has come near. He has entered into a relationship, a covenant with his people. And he has been faithful to that covenant. He chose Abraham, they say. He, he chose him out of all the people here. There wasn't anything special about Abraham, right? He was just some submitted guy in the city of Ur, in a pagan city, worshiping pagan idols. But God calls him. And brings him to himself, into a relationship with him. And though he had no children, though he was old, God makes a promise to him, even in his name. He says, you're going to be Abraham. Not Abraham anymore, you're Abraham, because you're going to be the father of many nations. And God made a covenant with him and his offspring. That word is very key to understanding this idea of covenant. The covenant passes to the offspring of Abraham. There's a bond that exists between Abraham and also and his descendants, his seed. And what was promised? Do you remember back in Genesis 12? They were promised a land. They were promised to be a nation. And they were promised to be a blessing to the whole world. Ultimately, though, God's covenant promises this. That I will be your God, and you will be my people. That is at the heart of the covenant. And so, it's understandable that here they're focusing on the land, right? You can that I look back at verse 8, right? We've got all those names that are fun to pronounce. The reason they're focused on that land, right, is that they've been taken out of the land. They have been in exile for years, and now they've come back to that land. But there's a problem. They don't really possess the land. They are actually in possession of Persia and the king of Persia. They are still slaves, even though they are in the land. So they focus on God's faithfulness to that promise of the land, yet there's this unease there. They're missing something. We'll see that come up later. But looking at this, the evaluation they get is that God has been faithful. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. He was faithful to his covenant promises. And then they go on to confess that God is faithful in redemption. Look at verses 9 through 15. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in by day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. And you came down on Mount Sinai, 
and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them your commandments, and statutes, and the law by Moses your servant. And you gave and you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go into to possess the land that you have sworn to give them. So here the highlight is about God's faithfulness and redemption. First in the Exodus, right? He, the Lord saw them in their affliction. He heard their cries, and he comes down and rescues them. He delivers them out of slavery. In redeeming his people, is faithful to his promises. But then at the Red Sea, when they're trapped and they fear for their lives, they cry out to God, and he lets them pass through the sea on dry land, and then defeats all their enemies all at once as the water crashes down on them. He led them every day by pillars of cloud and fire. And then when he was out Mount Sinai, when they were at Mount Sinai, he spoke directly to them. He gave them his words, his ten commandments, his law, his statutes, and he provided for them every day during this time. Right? He gave them manna and water. He not only provided the spiritual needs that they needed, the commandments, but he also provided their physical needs, their material needs. The Exodus illustrates that God is faithful in redeeming his people. That he did not leave them in the misery of their slavery, but he delivered them. But now we come to a, a turn in the passage. So far, this is kind of interesting. In verses, nine, or sorry, verses 6 through 15, God has been the subject of every sentence. You chose Abraham. You have kept your promise. You, you, you. But it's like they're saying, see what God has done. See what our covenant Lord has done. We should worship him. But from this point onward, there's an alternating between they, the people of Israel, and God. It goes back and forth. Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the Jewish people, they begin to confess their unfaithfulness in spite of God's faithfulness. Despite all that God had done for them in creation, in the covenant, in redemption, the people turn from God. They follow their own ways. But despite their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. Isn't that an important message for us? As we think about the ways that we so often fall short of our call as the people of God. That when we are unfaithful, He remains faithful. So we'll look at the way that He remained faithful even while they were rebelling against Him. Look at verses 16 through 21 now. That they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened, and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to them and did not withhold your manna from their, from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. They were 
stiff-necked. They wouldn't follow God. They would have been, I love this picture because it's the idea of an oxen that won't take a yoke. It stiffens its neck and prevents the yoke from being put on because it doesn't want to be led where it doesn't want to go. And that's what the people of Israel were like to God. He was trying to lead them and guide them, take them to a good land. He was trying to shepherd them to bring them to a land of flowing with milk and honey, but instead they rejected him and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery. It got to the point they were so stiff-necked that they would actually vote to stone Moses and Aaron and then appoint a new leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. That's how stiff-necked they were. Even when they were receiving the Ten Commandments from God Himself, from the finger of God, they are worshiping an idol at the base of the mountain. But God remained faithful. And He points out two ways. He remains faithful in His presence. You see this in the fact that He doesn't abandon them, but He leaves the pillar to guide them by day and by night. He even gives His good spirit to instruct them. And then He provides for them. They're in the wilderness for 40 years. And they get food every day, manna from heaven. They get water every day. And even their clothes don't wear out after 40 years. It's kind of like that basketball sweatshirt I have. Still going strong after all these years. My wife wants to throw it away, but I say, no, it's a miracle. <laughs> God is faithful in preserving his people and providing for them. And he's faithful to his promises. That's what we see in verses 22 through, 20, through 25. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted for them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Peshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land, and you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their land, with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they were. And they captured the fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of the houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, all orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. And they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in their goodness. God fulfilled his promises. You saw that the, the, the reference to the multitude of people, right? This is how God promised to Abraham he would be a great nation. And his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And now they've gone into the land and taken possession of it. And they have all these good things. Think of all the good things that God gave them. Because they turned to And I'm admitting it is to look at our own hearts and think, wow, if I could count all the ways that God has been faithful and good. I'm so quick to turn to I'm so quick to run back to those sins, the, the slavery that I used to be a part of. So God is faithful in his discipline. That's what we see in verses 26 through 31. We see this familiar pattern, the cycles of the books of Judges and the books of the Kings. The people disobeyed, they rebelled against God, and so God gives them into the hands of their enemy. Then they cried out to God for help, and so God sends them, to, sends them deliverers to save them. This first cycle is in verses 26 and 27. Nevertheless, despite all that they did right, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of your enemies, of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and heard from, from heaven. And you heard from heaven, according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. You save them from the hand of their enemies. So that's the first cycle. 
Then we see another cycle in verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them by your mercies. So there's a second cycle there. And then he actually goes on to say, they repeated the cycle over and over and over again. And in fact, we're honest, they're in the midst of the cycle right now. It's easy for us to sit in judgment and think, how can Israel do that? God did all these miraculous things for them. He rescued them. He delivered them. How can they keep repeating the cycle of sin? When are they ever going to learn? Well, the truth is, we're really no different. How many times have you come to church on Sunday? You sit there like me and you ask God to forgive you for that sin that you keep committing. You say, I'm never going to do that again, God. Today is a new day. I'm going to follow you. But then Monday morning rolls around. You're back out. You're angry again. You yell again. You're unfaithful again. You gossip again. You criticize others again. We, too, need to see how our, faith, our unfaithfulness is just like the people of Israel. And we're in desperate need, too. We need to throw ourselves at the mercy of God, trusting in His faithfulness, not in ourselves. But it's great encouragement this passage is that He doesn't leave the people of Israel there. He doesn't let them stay in their sin. He brings discipline. He's faithful even in discipline. For his people. He brings these surrounding nations around him. He brings hardship and suffering into their life so that they turn back to him. Even warned them by their his spirit. And they refused to listen. Right? They killed the prophets. But all this God would not forsake them. God would not forsake them because he is merciful and gracious. So he disciplines like a, like a faithful and loving father. Hebrews 12, 6 says. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son that he receives. And so finally, after recounting all this history of God's people, now the crowd, the assembly, makes their, their plea to God. In verses 32, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps coming in steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, and our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until now. Yet you have been righteous in all that you have come, that and all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law, or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them. In the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts, and behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings who have sent over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document, the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they come now and they appeal to God's mercy. They've been recounting how God has been merciful and faithful all along. And they confess that they have not been. 
They are wicked. They confess that we are slaves to this day because of our sins. We are oppressed and we are in great distress. And they're crying out to God. They're asking that God would look down from heaven and see and hear and deliver them. He would send the Savior again to save them from, from their situation. And they take, they take this promise together, this covenant, that they're going to turn from their sins, that they're going to follow the Lord and obey Him now. There's a problem. Despite all their best hopes and wishes and desires, their good intentions, despite even these great leaders that they have, the Nehemiah and Ezra, these Levites and priests, they fall again. They're going to make this great promise in chapter 10, and then in the next few chapters, we're going to see how they're falling away already. They're in that cycle again. They didn't, they didn't need just to be delivered from their current slavery from Persia. No, they needed a Savior, the Savior, who would rescue them from their slavery to sin. And that's how God shows his ultimate faithfulness in this. In sending Jesus, whose very name means he will save his people from their sins. That is how God showed his faithfulness. He showed it that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. He is the offspring by whom we need to be included into the people of God. The covenant promises are ours because of Jesus, the faithful offspring. And he leads us and he guides us. Not just with a pillar, but he's our shepherd. He takes us to the good land, the promised land. And he has given us not just the law through Moses, not these just commandments, but he gave us the truth in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. He did not just give us physical, material bread and water, but he actually sent the bread of life and the living water so that whoever eats and drinks of him would never hunger and never thirst again. And even when we stumble, even when we fail, he promises that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Nothing, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, all of them failed to leave God's people. God was planning to be faithful in this one way of sending the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, who would lead them, guide them, who would give himself for them, dying for the sins that they struggled with and repeated over and over again. So if there's one thing that we can take from this sermon, remember, God is faithful. He has demonstrated his faithfulness through all the history of his people. Demonstrate that to us in Jesus Christ. Christ is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time and your word today. May we wrestle with it. May we identify with it so that we can be humbled anew and come to you in reliance upon the perfect, faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has paid for all our sins. He has brought us back to you. We pray all these things.